Fresh Air production. Welcome to the 100 Types of Human with Dexter Dares, QC, and myself, Nihal Arthanayaka. Now, Dexter, today, the conversation we're having, we're having three separate conversations with three individuals who are going to be anonymized and their words read out by actors. And when you listen to this podcast, you'll understand why we've had to do that at their request quite justifiably so. Today's episode is a special one, and it's one we recorded out of sequence as a response to some of the recent events that have caused tremors right across the world. Following the death of George Floyd in Minnesota and the Black Lives Matter protests around the globe, including here in the United Kingdom, the British government was forced to make a response. With very obvious reluctance, it announced a cross-governmental inquiry into racial disparity. But what is of concern to many is that key people at the head of the inquiry have gone on record to say that institutional racism is more, quote, perception than reality. So where does the truth lie? In this episode... We talk to three people. They are professionals with important roles in the criminal justice system. For years, like many, they have experienced and suffered the effects of individual and institutional racism. But they have survived. With their hard-earned knowledge, they seek to make a change, and they also support those who still experience the damaging effects of racism within these vital organisations. We have taken the editorial decision to use actors to voice their words, and these are not their real names. But their stories are shocking and essential. So, without further ado, we bring you Robert, Elizabeth and Sheldon. So, the first person with us today is Robert. Morning, Robert. Good morning. So, can you tell us, I mean, how are you finding it at the moment? So, a lot of very difficult conversations going on. Passions are high. There's still a lot of misunderstanding around some of the language that's being used and some of the terms, because a lot of officers don't actually understand what it for example, what is meant by white privilege. But yeah, I mean, the good thing is is that there are conversations taking place, which is something that absolutely never used to happen. So that's, a, you know, Robert, that's a step in the right direction. Can I just ask you something like, what has been the response to Black Lives Matter? How, how, how has that been understood from what you've seen inside the organization and what sort of conversations have arisen as a result of it the response has been that they hate it it's it's created tension amongst the different uh the different demographics of officers because you know you, you know because of what's come out of 
the Black Lives Matter and because the history behind it is now sort of almost uh, coming to light it's it's upsetting a lot of people because uh, especially outside of the in terms of the wider community because you know for their whole lives they've been told about this great British empire that has come along and uh, helped so many people um, in actual fact things are very much different to what they were taught in school so it has really shook the apple cart so to speak and there's a lot of high emotions running at the moment because it's personal it's 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 deep and it's painful for a lot of people including myself how does that painful in what way robert well for me for example i've been in the organization for a very long time and i have suppressed a lot of emotion and feeling simply just to survive within the organization uh, I, I haven't been able to be myself it is really damaging because you lose yourself you know, and and I lost myself for a very very long time you you have to be two people you know one person when you're around your colleagues and you're another person when you're around your close friends and family and and the less time you spend around your friends and family the, the more you're going to become this other person what's an example robert of that in the working environment where if you i mean this term your blackness is not allowed to be just natural if the radio is playing and uh, i don't know stormsy or someone like that comes on the radio and they'll criticize or have some derogatory statement to say about him and his music and quickly turn the channel but that's a 50 50 situation so it's quite interesting that in that situation do you feel that there would be ramifications if you were to say well i'm sorry but you get to listen to what you want to and I get to listen to what I want to. And, and I've heard your music. It's rubbish. I want to just listen to Stormzy for a little while. Is it that you just don't feel empowered enough to say that? Precisely. So the, the subtext of this is that in order to what? To progress? That you have to basically be white, you certainly have to act in a certain way is that your belief yeah i absolutely i i absolutely believe that is the case because any hint that you're not conforming to their way or their culture of thinking and fitting in with them then you're not one of us you're on your own could i ask robert how does that fit with what the institution or the organisation has constantly said in recent years about promoting diversity and understanding other cultures. That's what we get told, and from the outside, that's the messaging we receive. But on the inside, it seems your experience is almost the opposite. What? How... how how, how does that happen? And 
How does it feel when you're in that position and you know that there is this double standard? Well, I mean, for a large portion of my years in policing, I, I, I believed what they said. And, you know, perhaps I wasn't as alive to what was going on as far as I am now in terms of the discrimination that was taking place until I experienced it. And it was only when I experienced that and I challenged that discrimination and I was expecting them to be behind me all the way uh, because, um, you know, this is this this is what they they're always talking about. Like we want diversity. And it was when I went on that road to challenging, you suddenly realise that not everyone is thinking the way you think and suddenly find yourself on your own and people are questioning you and asking you well are you sure it's not in your head gaslighting you aren't they yeah yeah Mm. absolutely and then you realize that uh that the way that everything is structured inside the organization it's actually to inhibit you from taking a complaint or a grievance and getting any you know a proper solution to it so they tend to as the expression goes kick the can down the road and when you think that you're giving them all the information they need to investigate the matter what they're actually doing is they're taking all that information and they're using it to defend their position in the long run well i i mean i think robert i mean it's so interesting and Uh, dispiriting also to hear that but it is interesting because my experience acting as as you know over the years for victims of people who have suffered in state custody is that their relatives experience almost exactly the same process in that it's delayed for years it's really hard to get any evidence you rarely get a straight answer you've got to fight tooth and nail to get any of the truth and then when you do establish what happens nothing is done and so that to me that's a really interesting mirror image if you like I've seen personally from the mothers and fathers and brothers of victims of that form of state abuse of power I've seen how it breaks them and I've seen how the denial of justice has a dramatic effect on their lives on how they function what they think about themselves and what they think about society can I ask you Robert in your case what has been the effect on you how has it impacted on you? You know, how has it, you know, landed, frankly, on you? It's landed on me in 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 uh, a multitude of ways. Uh, it's impacted on my health, um, my physical health. Um, I don't have the energy or the strength I used to uh, because this whole process has has just taken it out of me because you're constantly looking over your shoulders. I never dreamt in my life 
I would ever end up in such a dark place where you're actually considering uh, committing suicide because you just can't take it anymore. It the 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 pressure um, it um, it has on you and your family. The impact it has on your family. It's it's just unbelievable, and 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 it is is so frustrating when you're shouting from the rooftops and nobody is listening to you and it's it's really painful I couldn't understand what was going on I was really really confused because here here I am, a police officer doing what I've been taught to do, doing the right, by telling the truth, doing my job, challenging abusive practices, all the things that the organisation preaches, and, 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 and they are treating me as if I've done something wrong, and I'm the suspect, and I can only think it is to silence me to protect their image. And then you're told... The racism is all in your head. They say, I can't, I can't see any racism here. Are you sure it's not all just a misunderstanding? Yet, yet these were issues about blatant racism. But people don't want to talk about it. They, 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 they treat it like it didn't happen. And, and they say, they they will say to the public on the outside they want to root out racism yet on the inside uh it's a completely different picture and the truth is so many officers i know within are very very fearful about speaking out and i i know i know that lots of people who do speak out are the ones who are removed from their team and then they have to do the the walk of shame and leave it's humiliating. You've got to clear your desk and put everything in a box and go to another floor and, and, and everyone uh, distances themselves from you. And, and some of these are witnesses. But once you're isolated in that way, then you know, they, they take sides and they can't even look you in the eye. In fact, there was a white colleague who tried to support me and they received a barrage of abuse, personally, and on social media, both from serving and former officers. It's destroyed her. The solution seems to be to remove the victim, but you can't remove them all. And there will come a point where there are just too many. I was never going to let them break me, but it's the exhaustion of just trying to keep going. It leaves you shaken and it, it makes you question who your friends are, to question your relationships, and that is another terrible cost. It took me a lot of figuring out, and I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out. The hardest part is that many white colleagues just don't talk about racism. They, they are frightened to talk about it. They don't know how 
to talk about it and then they are fearful about it coming out the wrong way and we've got to change it robert can i ask you this why is it you're talking to us today what do you hope will come of it i'm talking to you today because i don't want anyone to have to go through what i've been through and i know my colleagues are going through something similar or or situations uh, worse than I went through. I've lost colleagues to suicide. I know colleagues that have contemplated suicide and they feel isolated and lost and uh, desperate for help and there's just no one there to help them. So I'm just hoping someone's going to listen really listen and take on board what we're saying because we're not just coming with problems we're actually coming with solutions if you're willing to listen we do have solutions but you have to listen and you have to take them on board you've got to allow us to speak You've got to allow us to be heard because we are the experts. We are the people living it, you know? And so it has to come from us. You know, Robert, you know, I do, we're very grateful to you for your time today. But, you know, I do a lot of work on FGM, female genital mutilation, and people <clears throat> ask me to speak about it. And I do. But what I always insist on is that I speak with a colleague who is a survivor because they are the experts, not me. You need, we need, and this is why I'm so grateful to to you and also to your colleagues, Elizabeth and Sheldon today, because you're the ones who know the truth of what's happening. And no matter how many reports people write, no matter how many policies there are, None of them actually are going to mean anything unless we listen, and I mean genuinely listen, and act upon the truth of people's lived experiences. And that's that's why I wanted to have this conversation today. And Nihal, I, I think you 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 think the same thing, really, don't you, from your perspective? Yes, uh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, you, you can write all the policies you want and, and it's been tried and tested for many, many years. And look, look at where we are. Thank you so much, Robert. Robert, thank you. Some of the things that are happening should have been happening a long time ago. But in the meantime, people have been suffering for years and have been alone and isolated I'm a detective and it's my job to analyse things and I won't let it go as I want to get to the truth and I have a sense, uh, a nose for the truth. I think it will just take a few people to come out and then I think there will be so many people who at the moment are scared to tell their story for the public to hear. I'm actually feeling quite positive this week. My optimism goes up and down because it's difficult when you're within the organisation and are being reminded of the problems every day and it's all around you. These are not 
one-off incidents. Uh, it will take a handful of people to speak, and then you'll see. Um, we really appreciate that. I'm, I, I know how difficult all of that has been for you. You know what? You're the first person who re reached out to me. This wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for your courage. And also, you know, your absolute determination, as you've just said on the recording, that we've got to do things differently. We've got to try to have a different type of conversation about these matters. And we can't have these conversations until we have the truth. And the truth isn't out there. That, this is the problem. This is the big missing piece of the jigsaw. That you do not hear these truths that the three of you are speaking about. And so, you know what? I'm really grateful to you, buddy. Thank you. Thank you to all of you. Just thank you for listening. You know, it means such a lot to me. So, Nihal, the experience of so many people who contacted me via Twitter and LinkedIn was that there were all sorts of different manifestations of racism in their lives and it affected people in different ways and one of the things that I was interested in was how the people who reached out to me actually tried to cope and live with all of that and one of the people who I became connected to was Elizabeth and Elizabeth is here with us today. How are you doing, Elizabeth? I'm good. Thank you. Good morning. 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 On that, Elizabeth, what did it leave any marks on you? Any sign? What happened when you were trying to cope with just the day, everyday racisms and, and the discrimination in your sphere? I... As a woman of African heritage, work within an important ministry, but more specifically, my experience was within a particular and very well-known public service where the everyday microaggressions, you know, being slighted or excluded from discussions or there'll be meetings that you wouldn't be able to attend, but you would have to take actions on and so you wouldn't have the full detail. You would never be working on an equal level to everyone else. And it was years later that I believed that I was coping and managing that because I never took a day off with stress and I felt that I was okay. But one day, I woke up with really rough skin between my wrists and my, you know, my forearm was just covered in these spots. And the only thing I can describe it, it, it looks like, it looks like chicken skin, but... But each of my hair follicles, they were really hard. And, you know, I wanted to scratch it off because it, it, it was itchy. But so raised that I thought I would never be able to wear short sleeves again. But at this point, I knew that I would have to, for the rest of my life, wear long sleeves because it was so disgusting. I felt to look at, it, it, it felt horrible on my skin. And, and that was the impact over years of internalising this horrible these horrible racial experiences elizabeth can you just give a little bit more detail on what these microaggressions were so i'd uh, 
be in a boardroom. There'd be a big group of colleagues. I would make a statement or I would make, you know, contribute. And they would be silent. After a while, someone else would say the same thing. And then everyone would be really, you know, enamoured by it. And they would take that as a contribution, but not my own. And I would arrive at work early. I'm an early riser and colleagues would arrive at the office. I'd be sitting there and I would be ignored by them. And then other colleagues arrived. They, they would be, again, really excited. Oh, hi, how are you? How was your weekend, etc. An instruction given by me would be contested and challenged. But the same instruction would be given by someone else. It would be accepted without question. Different people respond differently to these things. But my response was to be silent and to be there, to keep being there. I was asked once by one of these hostile people, when are you leaving? And in some ways, the easier thing to do would be to leave, to bail out of such an unpleasant and at times painful situation. But if I were to leave, they would win. Mostly I wasn't supported because other people were genuinely scared to speak out for me or support me because then they would be victimised. And they had their own lives. So I wonder how I coped. I think it depends what you mean by coping. I was intent on staying, but eventually it makes you ill. And it did make me ill. It exhausts you. I think my body shut down in order to keep going. I was determined that my work would be just as professional as ever. But my body paid the price. My body reflected what was actually happening. I have a strong faith and I believe that having a relationship with God is what kept me going because that was someone I could talk to and I could be vulnerable and scared and then those private conversations helped me be brave. If it wasn't for my faith, I would have had some kind of breakdown for sure. Once my face went into spasm, the left-hand side of my mouth was, was kind of smiling I went into hospital immediately and they prescribed medicine to relax my muscles. And these spasms would happen when I was stressed and was on the receiving end of these negative behaviours. Then, oh my goodness, I completely had forgotten to tell you this. I'm not sure why I missed it, but I think the mind also shuts down in part as another way to cope. But one day I was driving into work and I had a massive headache. My colleagues told me I looked terrible and told me to lie down. But I collapsed. I was blue-lighted to a hospital and they thought I had a bleed on the brain. I was really poorly and off work for a number of weeks, but I went back because I am a disruptor and disruptors don't stop disrupting. We have to if you want these organisations to change. There's too much that's wrong and that needs to change and I want to keep trying to do that, but it doesn't come free. I think that's what I've learned. There is a cost. Looking from the outside, people would see me, this poised, strong Elizabeth. But I knew the pain on the inside, the cracks, my arm hidden, in my head the bleed, my muscles spasming beyond my control. That is what it's like. Or was for me inside the justice system. Can I then just ask you... What is it 
that you wanted to achieve by going into the criminal justice system generally to work there in the first place? What were your hopes? What what was the reason for it? Okay, so so um, my answer is going to freak you out, absolutely. <laughs> I was in my mid-twenties when I started working in the justice system, but I was a volunteer. I volunteered for over a decade. And once a month I would visit prisons in my own time and I would run programmes and I developed a course which is... Oh, my days. Is personal development. So it was internal and external issues that affect ourself. And the whole point of anything that I do is about making a difference to the individual that has no voice and has no strength to make change. And so that was, that's kind of what that was, what inspired me to be there. But the other thing is that, as I mentioned, faith is important to me. And I became a born again Christian and I didn't want to just go to church. I wanted to do what Jesus did. And he you know, he he didn't just go around being holy. He actually he's actually doing stuff for people that were disadvantaged. That was my model. How are you going to show your faith? How are you going to make it real and use it to help other people? I wanted my belief to work in the world. Elizabeth, do you think that that people talk a good game about fighting racism but in your experience they don't really want to fight it you need to know what you're getting yourself into i mean organizations don't even want to say race the language has changed over the years you know from race to you know discrimination and then we we went to diversity and inclusion and that's so lovely and warm Well, there is institutional racism in every institution. It's right there. And someone needs to be brave enough to actually do something about it. Because it's wrong. Elizabeth, could I just ask about that? I mean, we've got, as you know, a cross-governmental inquiry that's going to report towards the end of the year. And the Prime Minister has appointed someone who thinks that institutional racism is more a perception than a reality what would you say to that what was what's your experience working in these institutions for a long time now about the reality of the institutional racism that you experienced and witnessed what's the point of another report this commission it's a tick box If they really wanted real change, then they would ask people that have suffered these negative experiences and continue to have those negative experiences, and they would be asked to be involved in this. Why would you choose someone who doesn't even think it's a problem going in? It doesn't make sense. Could I ask you, if you think back to that 24-year-old who went in with all those ambitions to to do a good thing and make a contribution and help people what and what have you learned what what advice could you give that person about what they're going to be facing and how they can cope with it Mm. 
I would say, you made a good decision to join that organisation, despite the way that you would be treated, because these organisations need people like you. I would tell 24-year-old Elizabeth, align yourself with people that can support you, because it's a very difficult journey to take on your own. And at some stage, even if you don't feel that you've been affected mentally, it will be reflected in your body. And when it comes to that stage, it is quite scary. So I'd say align yourself with like-minded people and make sure that you are supported for your own well-being. But I would not say don't do it because it has to be done. People like us have to do it and try to change the system. It's too important to leave to the others who don't care about vulnerable people, about people not like them, who don't even see them as the same or equal to them. Well, look, I know you've got, Elizabeth, I know you've got to uh, deliver some training uh, very, very shortly. So we're really grateful to you for giving us this time this morning. (laughs) Thank you. So that was Elizabeth. One of the other people who reached out to me, Nihal, was Sheldon. Sheldon is, a, having spoken to him, is a bit of a hero of mine, frankly, just in terms of the, what he has put up with for so many years. And he's with us today. How are you doing, Sheldon? Thank you. So Sheldon trying to just exist and survive in these organisations comes at a cost. Could you, could we start by just you telling us, you having had two stints in this organisation, what has been the personal cost to you? Actually, to be honest, it has always been about my children. I have beautiful children from two amazing relationships. When you commit to fighting for change every second of every day, something has to give. Unfortunately, my relationship with my family paid the price. I know the reasons why my relationships fell apart. It was because I made the choice to fight. A fight in an organisation where black people didn't speak out about what was wrong in the police. Not only was it hard, it was was frightening. And, And to be honest, both my partners were very frightened for me. Yeah, they would both tell me why, why why would you fight for black people when there are some black people who don't like you even being in the police force. I know they were just frightened for me and I, and I get it, but I just couldn't sit back and watch this happening in front of me. But they couldn't really understand why I was there in, the, in an organisation, a servant police officer, an inner city black man, a person of colour, seeing things that shouldn't be happening in an organisation that was meant to protect us. That, that I thought were unacceptable and racist, and I just couldn't be silent. I couldn't turn a blind eye. I had to at least try to do something. And trust me, it wasn't easy. My choice to stand up against the wrong I saw affected my relationship, my family, and me. But what do you do when you're surrounded by injustice, witnessing violent behaviour towards black people? Provocative language, just just trying to wind people up to get a reaction. What do you do? 
Do you just turn a blind eye? By doing that, does that make you complicit? That's what I kept struggling with and I knew deep down I just couldn't do that. I joined the police force because I wanted to do the opposite. I wanted to be part of an organisation that people relied on, felt safe around, looked up to. In fact, that desire I started out with, which, which may sound naive or romantic, but I was also aware that I was neglecting my children because of my choice to engage in a constant fight with my organisation. I often felt I failed as a father because of the fight for change. I think back to when I wasn't there, when my children were taking many of the important first steps in life. I didn't realise I, I didn't realise I was doing what I said I would never do and be like my father. See, my dad was a part of the Windrush generation and he came here not because they wanted him but because they needed him to do the work they didn't want to. And I think because of the disappointment of not feeling welcome and in what had always been sold as the motherland, he processed his experiences with drinking and, and gambling and wasn't there for his children. My, uh, my, my, my fix, my, my solution was, was different to my father. How I cope with it. I threw myself into my work constantly, working, and, and, and I prioritised it above my family. But I, I don't know what I would have... I don't know what I would have felt about myself if I just walked away from the fight against racism in the organisation. So Sheldon, what, what I'm hearing is that you got yourself into something, you know, with the best possible motives. But then it became dysfunctional, pathological, and the organisation was hurting other people around you. Uh, it was hurting you. And then you being absent, you were indirectly hurting your children and I'm not pretending I don't understand this kind of thing you know my work has taken me away at key points in my children's lives when I've been on cases been away for weeks at a time from home uh, in sub-saharan Africa on human rights work and then when I was researching in the states and these are such difficult things you know just being away from your kids getting distance from them like that. And then in your case, you've got racism laid on top of all of that as well. I'm also interested, Sheldon, as I so often am really, about us just going back a little bit and something you said about your father and how your family history feeds into your experiences and how you conducted yourself. Um, but also as well, one thing I thought was interesting is about, is there a difference between the hopes and expectations that your family had when they came to the UK and the reality of what it was like to be here when they first came? I was the first graduate of my family and it was something my father, as he came over on the ship from the Caribbean, could not have really dreamt of. When my relatives in the Caribbean saved up their shillings and got on the boat, they thought their queen was waiting for them with open arms. And then they arrived, still smiling and excited in the smog and filth of Tilbury, about coming home. But the reception they got was very different. Hostile. It angered me when I learnt that they could not get simple things like, like banking or 
homes or, or jobs. My dad moved from job to job and we moved from place to place across the country. You know, I can remember my dad was always angry. And it, sometimes violent. I didn't understand it then, but I, I, I understood it much later. You see, my dad was embarrassed by his failures as a father, as a breadwinner, and as a good husband. But to be honest, I was angry at my parents. I was angry that my parents didn't didn't challenge what was happening to them. And, and to say enough is enough. But now I understand just how difficult it must have been for them. They shielded me from a lot of it. And that must have been so hard for them. So I think this all feeds into how I dealt with things in the force. We, we've talked a few times now, but what what struck me when I found out what your story was, was how unlikely it was that you would... Uh, do what you did as an 18-year-old and take that course in your life. Could you just tell us where you were at and why you did what you did? Yeah, I grew up in a housing estate and my mum raised us and she worked really hard. At that time, the community was very racist community. I went to a poor school and the expectations for us as black boys were quite low. I remember one teacher said to me as a first-year child in the secondary school, I don't know why you're trying so hard. You're only going to end up driving a bus. <laughs> now, we didn't have positive experiences with the police on our estate. And when I was stopped, I used to bombard them with lots of questions and they eventually let me go. I can remember a black police officer came to me and, and he said, why don't you join the police? And I said, never. Two days later... A hand-delivered envelope came through my door. I opened it, and it was an application to join the police force. And I just laughed and, and put the envelope on the side of my bedroom and I just left it there. Two weeks later, I filled it in and thought, do you know what? I will give it a try. It was like a, a dare to myself. I always told myself I could always get any job in the world that I wanted. It was the early 80s and, and, and I was in the police force. It was probably the, the hardest three years of my life. I received constant harassment from colleagues, supervisors and even senior officers. It was too much for the young me to cope with and, and I resigned. But I knew there was still so much work to be done with the police and our communities around addressing the discrimination and overt racism black people were being subjected to. <sighs> After some years, I decided to rejoin the police. Well, previously, when we were speaking to Elizabeth, she talked about microaggressions. Can you identify microaggressions, ways that they manage to... Because look, not all racism is calling you the N-word, right? There are lots of subtle layers to this, how they manage to dehumanise people, right? If indeed this happened to you. Could you identify microaggressions? This is a modern term, but... Look... There is nothing micro about racism. It's macro. It's blatant. It's obvious. I've seen a lot of our black colleagues in a service disappear. It's hard to imagine just how difficult it is when you're, you're in there and you're constantly having to be careful. To feel and, and, and to know that there are a number of people around you who don't want you to be there. This just 
it, it takes its toll on people. I've seen colleagues suffer from mental health because of such unrelenting racism. The leadership structure needs to be more balanced and less white because there's a real demoralization amongst officers of color. Like me, many black police officers say, this is not what I signed up for. We joined up with best intentions to try to do good, but it's really tough. You feel on your own, you know, um, isolated and abandoned or even criticized for upsetting the apple cart or however you want to call it. It's really hard to explain. This is why I agreed to talk to you. So people who aren't inside these institutions can begin to understand how hard it is to change them and why change is so difficult to achieve despite our efforts. But what needs to change, Sheldon? What, what is it that is dysfunctioning and how is, how, how is the experience of people of colour in the, the the that institution that force at the moment what 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 do you see and witness we need to change how we see black and minority officers we need to understand why black people are reluctant to join the service we need to encourage black colleagues to have their voice to ask questions to challenge and be promoted because they are the right person for the job we need to ensure that they are not persecuted because they have a voice and we should be taking advantage of this moment in time because people, police and the public are asking for change. This is another reason why I agreed to talk to you. You know, real life stories of racism need to be told and retold if we are really to change the status quo. Can I ask, is a, there's a 20 year old black person listening to this podcast who thought like you when you were a young man that they want to join the police they might be put off from doing that what would you say to them why why after everything you've said why if you want to change it you've got to be in it you can't be outside and sometimes you've got to help people to change but the more of us that are standing up as police officers and saying this is not acceptable, then you have a movement. I'm saying to young people, join the service if you really want to make a difference. It's a great job if you do it well. I say to all my officers, treat people with respect and the job will respect you. So yeah, I'd say to any person of colour, if you want a great career, you'll find it in the service. And you can really be part of the change because change is coming. It's coming. It, and it's a long time coming, but it is coming. I think that's a great place to end, actually, isn't it? I think so. Sheldon, we're really grateful to you for the time you've given us today. After listening to all three of them, Dexter, I mean, all three worked working in the criminal justice system, I kind of naively feel as though okay, you know, decades after Lawrence, that there must be robust mechanisms whereby people who feel as though they're being discriminated against can speak to people, they will be listened to, their issues will be dealt with, and change will happen. And one of the most kind of profoundly depressing parts of 
these conversations was a how it's affected people both physically and psychologically but also just how robert i think particularly stuck out to me was how thankful he was that someone was listening to him now with all the committees with all the organizations with all the charities with all the associations that are out there for him to just say just thank you for giving me a chance to speak and for listening to what i've been through was was really moving you know just really moving but also it just felt as though gosh that these organizations and look we can't extrapolate from just three individuals that this is the experience of everybody we can't do that but but for those three particularly you really have to wonder how much of an effect it has had on these people to just not be listened to yeah yeah i mean i think i think there's an important distinction isn't there between uh, an organization listening to someone and someone being heard and i and i think that's the problem that robert never felt that he's been heard really by this organization and i think also you know for me what really stands out about all of it is how do we understand this you know instead of saying right these are terrible organizations they're not they do really important and difficult uh jobs uh, their function society are so complex and so difficult so this is i don't i don't see today as about you know trying to castigate them or to try to say oh these are terrible organizations what i think is more interesting and what came out for me is the mechanism you know how is it that that we should understand this you know what is racism what what are the effects of it and then when you look at elizabeth you know how you know you think about how it's marked her body on the skin how interesting and telling is that that it's actually inscribed on her skin and you know it's the principle that you know the body keeps score and so all of them are high functioning individuals people will see them and they'll think well they're doing okay and then beneath the surface underneath the sleeve or the shirt sleeve or the jacket sleeve you see the reality and so i think that for me the question is how do we understand this and i think one of the ways to understand this is that racism is trauma you know it affects people it infects our sense of self it alienates people it isolates them as we saw with all three of them isolated from their organization their work colleagues even from the people who they loved in their uh, relationships it affects your belief about the world and also your belief about yourself and so if we start thinking of racism as a, a form of social pain then we start to understand why it is so powerful because you know social pain isn't just some imaginary thing it actually does affect us and hurt and one of the things that um evolution has done is that social uh, pain networks which arrived and evolved 
after physical pain networks appear to have piggybacked onto these much older mechanisms. And so when people experience social pain, and in, in the book, Ten Types of Human, there, there is a large section about amazing research about this. You can actually see on functional MRI scans how, when people experience social pain, um, many of the same neural mechanisms uh, for physical pain light up, and you can see it. And so, you know, we're taught, you know, when we're growing up, you know, sticks and stones and all of that, that, you know, but words can't hurt me. They do. They really do hurt, and the effects are real. And, you know, just to try to bring it to a conclusion for me it is this fundamental human dilemma the dilemma of the human conditions we we have this coin with two sides it seems to me on the one side we have as social beings a desperate need to belong and you saw with all of them with robert with sheldon with elizabeth they went into those organizations with the highest motives to try to do good in the world and they desperately wanted to belong to those institutions but on the other side part of um the way we police belonging is that we ostracise people who don't conform, who challenge the system, and who cause, uh, in inverted commas, um, make waves, who cause trouble to the organisation. And you saw that with all of them. And that mechanism of social ostracism, social policing, is one of the most uh, powerful, damaging, divisive forces in the world. So I think that for me that was a really interesting way to understand what is happening and what racism actually is in terms of individual people. I hope that, uh, although it seems strange, I was just going to say I hope that they find the solace, the justice, but um, I don't know. I don't know if they will or not. You know the legal system better than I do, and you've been fighting this for decades. And yeah. uh, I, I don't yeah. think you would for a yeah. second say, well, pretty much the fight's over, um, not by a long way. <laughs> so, Well, the thing, well, how can it, the thing is, how can it be? Just if we, if we think about, if we look at the metrics on racism and you know you know for a large part or at least half of my legal career we didn't really understand institutional racism at all so you so mm. that is a relatively new development that's the first thing and then secondly look the, the reality is all of these things just you know you know aristotle taught us two and a half thousand years ago now justice isn't the default condition of the universe yeah. you know it doesn't just fall like gentle rain from the sky it is a constant uh, iterative accomplishment and we only get the justice system that we are prepared to fight for and that fight is constantly going on and the trouble that we see with these three fantastic people is that individuals pay a price and we've seen it how it's affected their lives but the problem for all of us and this is why it's so important i think that we do this 
is that not only do individuals pay a price, but when you have individuals in important institutions paying a price and people who are going into those institutions with the best motives to do the right thing are then destroyed or damaged by that system, society pays a price. And that's why I think Nihal, or one of the most important reasons why we're doing what we're doing and why, my friend, we should keep doing more of it. Find out more about what we are doing and check out our other episodes of The 100 Types of Human at the100typesofhuman.com. You can also email us if there's somebody that you feel would fit very much into uh, The 100 Types of Human, then uh, podcast at the100typesofhuman.com or just uh, reach out to us on Twitter at 100typesofhuman, 100typesofhuman. That is, uh, and uh, and you can also reach out to us individually, can't you, with uh, Dexter DSQC uh, on Twitter and the real Nihal on Twitter as well. And also, very importantly, tell your friends and subscribe. Absolutely. There's a lot more about these particular issues, uh, social ostracism, uh, social pain, and racism in. Uh, the book that started all of this, The Ten Types of Human. But also, I want to, and I think we both do, we want to thank the actors, you know, the sensational Ajoa Ando, who was Elizabeth, the wonderful Chris Colquhoun, and Chris played Robert, and the amazing Ocasey Morrow, who interpreted Sheldon for us. There are more details about all the actors and links to their portfolios on our website and we can't thank them enough this has been a fresh air production produced by neil cowling thank you very much indeed for listening 